On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Richard Cross about the communicatio idiomatum. We cover topics like just what is the communicatio idiomatum? What does it actually mean? What have people like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin actually thought about the doctrine? What have they actually taught? What are all these debates really about? What does the Council of Chalcedon actually require of us uh, for understanding this doctrine? And much more. So, as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or, or requests in general for the show, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out on our website at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum, a podcast that hopes to foster thinking by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, I am really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Richard Cross. I think of the people that I've read in, in my own studies, I've learned a ton from him. He's one of the top uh, people I would I would attribute a lot of my um, just curiosity and understanding uh, to things from relating from uh, Duns Scotus to medieval Christological debates to now reformational questions and, and all sorts of things. So I think he's doing he's done a lot of really interesting and really really helpful work, and I imagine a good chunk of our listeners have benefited from him as well. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him today about the now I may pronounce this wrong because I'm not that smart, but the communicatio idiomatum um, and just the the sharing of properties. Of the divine between the divine and the human nature, or if that's or if it's between the person, I guess. So we'll get into some of those questions as we go. But Dr. Cross, before we get started, for those who may not be overly familiar with you, why don't you give us a short introduction as to who you are? So where do you teach? What do you teach on? And maybe what got you interested in this topic in particular? Yeah, very happy to, and thank you for your kind words. Um, I've been te- I've been professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame since 2007. Um, I moved there from Oriel College in Oxford, where I was a fellow in theology um, between 1993 and 2007. Um, so my interest and work has really spanned the area of philosophy and theology. Um, what perhaps used to be called philosophical theology. I don't know. Nowadays, it's probably called analytic theology. But I've always really been interested in the history of these things. Um, I've, I got working on Scotus's Christology years ago in 1986 when I did my doctorate at Oxford. Um, and that was a suggestion that you found in Pannenberg's book, Jesus, God and Man. Pannenberg had studied um, Scotus's uh, theology of predestination, and had and noted in Jesus, God, and Man that um, Christology would be a good, a ripe area for research for someone who was interested in Scotus, as I was. Um, and since then, I've, I, I've, I've produced, among other things, a book which emerged from that uh, dissertation, which was The Metaphysics of the Incarnation, Thomas Aquinas, the Duns, Scotus. And Really, around 1990, I was asked to write some some dictionary articles on the history of Christology. And the encyclopedia never came out. But I did one on uh, medieval and one on Reformation. And I got very interested in the topic of Reformation Christological debates then, but did nothing more with it. Um, And then um, 
I got to reading Tim Paul's book on Christological semantics. And I realized that in a way, something which Paul had highlighted in his book turned out to be the key to the debate, as I thought, between Luther and Zwingli. Uh, and then it just took off from there. That's what happened. Mm. That's awesome. So uh, I, I have, we've had Tim Paul on in the past, and I feel like he's done a lot of really, really interesting work. So I, I am curious how – did he – I mean, did he talk a lot about this? Because I don't think I've read that that book from him. Was this a major topic in there or is it just kind of a small germ and, and it blossomed in your own research? Okay, so he doesn't mention uh, any of the Reformation debates. He's not, as far uh, as I know, interested in them. But he has a proposal for Christological semantics, which was quite interesting. Um, so how should you construe uh, the semantics of a predication such as um, the Son of God is passable? And he says, well, what that means is the Son of God has a nature that can suffer. He doesn't put it quite that way, but that's what it amounts to. Um, and it, it occurred to me that something like that was the view that Swingley had, and that something like that is the view that Luther wanted to reject. But then nobody had seen that because they got distracted by another aspect of the debate altogether, which turned out to be much more on the surface in, in later Protestant discussions, uh, which was to do with um, whether Christ's human nature has divine attributes. But that's yeah. a different topic. So maybe then we start with just defining a little bit of what this uh, communicatio idiomata means and maybe what the Council of Chalcedon requires for us to understand that. Or are these questions a little bit separate, maybe? No, they're, they're fine. I'll take them together. So, I mean, according to Chalcedon, um, you should think of Jesus as a divine person, right? Identified as the son of God. Uh, and this divine person obviously has a divine nature in, in some sense of the word has and, and comes to gain a human nature in virtue of which we could say that this divine person is human or is a human being or is a man. Um, thinking of a person or the technical term is hypostasis, it's kind of independent, concrete item. Um, having a nature, um, it's the possession of the nature that grounds the predication. Um, God is man, right? The possession of the human nature grounds that predication. And along with that, along with being human and along with being divine, go a load of other predicates too, standardly. So in the divine case, being omniscient, being omnipotent. In the human, or being impassable, in the human case, uh, being passable, being able to suffer, that is to say, um, not being omniscient or something like that. Um, and the, 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 the communicatio, the doctrine is um, about the fact that you can predicate human attributes of the divine person and divine attributes of the divine person, and you can do so howsoever you denominate the divine person. So suppose we, since the divine person has the human nature, we can call the divine person a human being, and that refers to the divine person. And we can then predicate of that person divine and human attributes, even under the denomination human being. So this human being uh, is immortal. This human being created the stars, was a, one that the scholastics loved. And by the same token, God, right, this divine person, suffers uh, and dies. 
Uh, and that's the doctrine of the communicatio, that, that the person has whatever comes along with the natures. When it comes to how we understand the union of these two natures, I know there's different traditions that have that have understood that in a number of different ways. But um, what 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 boundaries does this Chalcedon put on how we understand this communicatio? Are there um, certain restrictions that it puts on us that we can say this, but we can't say this? And how much wiggle room do we have there? Um, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the council itself, whenever it um, predicates human properties of the person um, tends to do so with restrictions, so according to the human nature. And likewise with divine properties, according to the divine nature. It's not clear whether Chalcedon allows the unqualified or unrestricted predication of these things. So <clears throat> I just said, God dies. Okay, It might be that we have to understand implied in that according to the human nature, and just the bare predication would be false. What Paul's semantics does, it gives one a way uh, to have the unqualified um, predication, God dies, because you construe that to mean the divine person has a nature that is mortal or something like that. And I don't know whether Chalcedon... Um, because the danger with way, the danger with the unqualified or unrestricted predications is that you're going to generate contradictions, right? So obviously, this person dies, and this person doesn't die, looks to be a contradiction. But if this person dies according to the human nature, but not according to the divine nature, doesn't look like a contradiction. The difficulty is working out what that little qualifier, according to the human nature, is doing from a semantic point of view. Um, in Paul's semantics, it's not in fact a contradiction because when you interpret the predications correctly, they're, they're, they're in a way about natures, right? Possessed by the person. So when it comes to the natures, I mean, what does the union of these two natures in Chalcedon mean? It, and what are the various interpretations? Because it seems that depending on how we understand the union of the two natures, that would probably significantly influence our understanding of the communicatio. Yes, a very, very good question. Um, it looks as though you can't make the union of the natures itself um, the basic fact. It's something that needs to be explained. And typically theologians explain it by appealing to an antecedent relation between the divine person and the human nature. And in virtue of the relationship between the divine person and the human nature, it's true that the divine nature possessed by the person is united to the human nature. So what's the antecedent relation between um, the person and the nature? Um, there are all sorts of possibilities here. I think the most popular one you find in Cyril of Alexandria, um, and he thinks that you might construed the union between the, na the human nature and the divine person as something akin to the union between uh, an accidental or contingent property and the substance that possesses it. So it's something akin to the relationship between me and my size or me and my rather finite wisdom or something like that. And we certainly find that uh, taken up in the Middle Ages. That's really the a theory you find initially in Bonaventure, then through Godfrey Fontaine, Scotus becomes its its um, sort of standard spokesperson. And you find that all the way through um, 
the Reformation debates that I was examining with, with, with one complicated exception, which we might get to later on. Yeah, I guess we can, we can transition now to the, to the Reformation. So let's, I guess, talk about what Luther and, and Zwingli, um, what their, what their thoughts were about this. I don't know the best way to maybe set this up, but, um, maybe we can start with Luther and just get, offer an explanation of, of what his understanding of this communication of attributes was, and then we can transition to Zwingli from there and compare the two. Okay, very good. Um, so basically, um, Luther is very explicit about something which previous theologians hadn't been very explicit about. Um, so first of all, let's make a distinction between a linguistic relation, which is predication, and... Um, an ontological relation, and I'm going to call it bearing because that's what lots of people call it. So now we say, um, according to this theory from Cyril and Scotus, the divine person bears the human nature right? in, the, in a way analogous to that in which I bear my contingent properties. Um, <clears throat> now, is it also true that in virtue of this bearing relationship, the divine person ontologically bears uh, the human attributes that come along with the human nature? Right. So does he ontologically bear not only his human nature, but also uh, the weight associated with that human nature, let's say? Um, and I think it's fair to say you don't find a systematic answer to that question in uh, among medieval theologians. But Luther takes a really strong view on the matter. Um, he says, yes, it must. Um, so it's not just that the, the, the second person of the Trinity is linguistically characterized by the weight associated with the human nature, but he actually bears it in a way similar to that in which the human nature bears it. Um I don't know quite why he thought that. He certainly thinks that if you deny that, you're going to be committed to the view that Nestorius held, which is that you've got two parallel subjects. So I think he thinks that in order to be a genuine, a genuine subject of predication, you've actually got to be the bearer of the properties. And you can see how it might go in virtue of bearing this thing, the human nature, by piggybacking. He also bears the things which the human nature bears. Um, and so he calls that real, or the Lutherans later on call that real as opposed to merely verbal predication. And they assume that if it's a merely verbal relation, in fact, uh, the predication turns out to be false, right? The divine person doesn't possess um, his human wisdom or his human weight um, and so isn't human. And that's the view that Luther ascribes to Swingley because Swingley says um, – all these predications are merely linguistic tropes. Okay, and what he means by that is precisely that the divine person doesn't bear uh, these human attributes. You find that view put very clearly in um, one of Swingley's followers, the theologian Peter Vermilli, who says it's true that the divine person, let's say, suffers, but we shouldn't say that the suffering, and this is Vermilli's word, reaches the divine person. So what he's trying to pick out there, what he's trying to get at is precisely what I think Zwingli's view is, which is explicitly that there's a, a linguistic relationship between the divine person and a predicate that expresses a human property, but there's no corresponding ontological relationship. Okay, The ontological relationship is just 
to the human nature. And then there's another one independent, which is just of the human nature to the divine person. And all of those relationships are bearing relationships. So as philosophers would say, bearing turns out not to be transitive. It's not true that if the divine person bears a human nature and the human nature bears a certain property, that the divine person bears that property ontologically. But it is true that you can predicate that property truly of the divine person. And that's what Luther wouldn't allow, basically. That's interesting. It seems, as I think about that, this somewhat tracks the classical theism debates of does God have a real relation to the world or not? Um, just in general. So you've got the Thomistic, I guess, axiom of real relations and logical relations and these mixed relations that God has where he doesn't have a real relation with creation, and yet you can still predicate certain things of it. Would you say that that's a similar, it's just a similar problem attributed to Christology now, or, or are they distinct in how they're thinking about those topics? Okay, those will turn out to be distinct topics. And I don't know whether Luther takes a view on the mixed relation stuff, which is just standard. It's not really Thomistic. It's just standard medieval accounts of God's relationship to the world. Um, and what the mixed relation stuff is that you're talking about is that if if we talk about a relationship between God and creatures, what we're picking out is something real on the creaturely side. It's the thing that's real on the creaturely side that makes the relational predication, which has God as its subject, true, much as it makes the relational predication which has the creature as its subject true. So Luther doesn't take a view as far as I know on whether there are real relations in God to creatures as well as in creatures to God. Um, you could run the theory I just described and Swingley's theory too without making that admission. Right. So um, it would be that um, there's a bearing relationship between the divine person and the human nature. And what makes that, what makes it true that the divine person bears a human nature might be something wholly um, intrinsic to the human nature. And there's a bearing relationship, according to Luther, between um, human properties and the divine person. But what might what makes that true might again be something wholly intrinsic to the human or the creaturely side of things. So you could run this, you could run either theory either way if you like. So when I think about Luther and Zwingli, they, they, it seems that they have they view that there's a problem, and both of them see different problems. So it seems what you're saying, Luther would say, what um, if if I don't have um, this, I guess, robust relationship that with an ontological bearing, then I'm not. He's not really human in any in any real sense. And whereas Zwingli would say, well, in the opposite way, I'm afraid if I have that type of ontological bearing relation, then God is going to be predicated with all sorts of things that I don't want to predicate him, such as in, such as passability and the like. Is, is that how I should think about it? Nearly, but I mean, Sweeney wants those predications to be true because that's the requirement of Chalcedon. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that's his motivation, but I mean, it, 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 on his theory, they turn out to be true. If you deny that, then Luther's worry is going to be exactly spot on, right? The really... Uh, if you can't predicate, you can't truly predicate these human attributes of the divine person, then Nestorianism is true after all. Okay, and you could predicate them of the human component, and you could predicate them of the myriological sum, divine person and human component, but you couldn't predicate them of the divine person. Uh, and so, so Luther just thinks you can't secure the truth of predications unless there's unless it unless they map on some way to some ontological bearing relationship, which is, by the way, false. 
Right? It's not the case. There are plenty of predications that we use all the time, which don't express properties in the world, but are nevertheless true. I'll give you an example, if you like. Um, I'm an animal, right? There's no property out there in the world being an animal, right? There's being a human or being a cat or something, right? What makes it true that I'm an animal is that I'm a human being. Uh, so so Luther's, Luther's got too rigid a requirement for predication. Okay. So according to, to Luther's thought, how, how does this work in the opposite direction? So, so far we've been discussing um, the, the ontological bearing of a, of a human property onto the divine person, but what about divine properties onto the human nature? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a very good question because we were talking about the communicatio earlier on. And I talked merely about the fact that we can predicate divine and human attributes of the divine person. Um, but there is another aspect to it, and this really goes back to pre-Chalcedonian Christology. Um, the other aspect is, and you find it in a lot of Alexandrian Christology, is that there is some sense in which the human nature participates in divine attributes. Um, so if you go to the 7th century or when John of Damascus is introducing, or early 8th century, when John of Damascus is is is, is sort of systematizing um, earlier understandings of the communicatio, uh, he really he picks out that, that you can predicate um, attributes, divine and human, of the person. He also says, oh, and the human nature shares in divine attributes in some sense or another. Um, and it's this aspect of the debate between Luther and Zwingli that is more well known, though, though I also think completely misunderstood. Um, so a lot depends on what you think it would be for a human nature to share in divine attributes. How it is in John of Damascus is, um, uh, and I think in the, in, in, in the whole Eastern tradition, it's pretty minimalist in, in, a, in a sense that what it is for, to participate in the divine is for the divine to be active in you in a certain way, right? Produce, causing effects in or through you, something like that. Um, how it got to be under, and in and in that sense, it's quite a general relationship. It's not just restricted to Christology. Right? Um, mm -hmm. That might be a paradigm case, but certainly not the only case. In the medieval West, um, typically notions of participation were understood in terms of um, not divine actions as such, but as something like created qualities. Um, so you have a, the created quality of, let's say, charity, uh, in virtue of which um, you partake of divine love or something like that. Um, and what happens? I mean, the debate between Luther and Zwingli gets very complicated um, by a particular glitch, which looks a bit like what I've just been talking about, but in fact is completely unrelated to it. Um, but quickly gets misunderstood in a really radical sort of way. Um, the glitch is this. Um, so in the mid-1520s, Luther and Zwingli are talking about, um, they're debating Eucharistic matters. And obviously, uh, Zwingli thinks that um, what, what it is for Christ's body to be present in the Eucharist is just for the Eucharist to symbolize it. Right? So it's present in a way that someone is made to think about something. Um, Luther takes a really much stronger view than this. And at one point, so the Christ body is really present there. And at one point, uh, he, he comes up with a really odd argument, uh, which is 
a Christological argument that um, Christ's body and the divine nature are inseparable from each other. And if they're inseparable from each other, that must mean that wherever the divine person is, Christ's body is. And therefore, for Eucharistic purposes, so of course it's really present uh, in the Eucharist. It's a bizarre argument because it, for a number of reasons, it proves way too much. Right? It proves much more yeah. than Luther needs. That makes it not present in any way that it's not present everywhere else, right? Yes. right. So now he needs another way for it to be present in the Eucharist. So that's typically it becomes present for you in some special way. Um, it's also a bizarre Christological argument because it, it, the fact that the, the two natures are inseparable, right, that you couldn't uh, prize them apart – doesn't mean that the one has to be wherever the other is, right? And and also that seems that seems on the face of it incompatible with the thought that Jesus might actually have uh, a physical body, because how Luther defines this sort of bodily um, omnipresence is in terms of um, some Aristotelian categories he's got from the uh, from the medieval theologians. Because after all, and don't forget this, Luther was a medieval theologian, completely trained in standard alchemist semantics. And his instinct when confronted with anything fiddly uh, is to appeal to something, and usually some, something from Occamist semantics. Uh, in this case, it's something from standard medieval Eucharistic theology, which is that typically Christ's body gets to be present in the altar in a, so that it's at a place, but in a non-spatial way, so it's not the parts aren't all extended. And some medieval theologians said, well, I wonder if God could fill the whole universe like that. And well, yeah, it looks like he could do, counterfactually, he hasn't decided to do that. Uh, and so Luther just goes with this. Um, yes, in fact, God has done that. He's filled the whole universe in this non-spatial way uh, with his body. Um, and so now that begins to look like it might be an instance of the kind of thing that you were just talking about, where uh, Brandon, where um, Christ's human nature begins to participate in divine attributes. And that's it's a classic, it's the locus classicus, as people might want to say, of Lutheran discussions on this topic. It's the starting point. But, you know, you have to notice something about the discussion in Luther, set aside later Lutherans. Um, he's thinking of um, um, the relationship of occupying space in terms, uh, in Aristotelian terms, right? What it is to occupy space, what it is for my body to occupy space is for my body to have um, a relation of being contained to the thing that immediately contains me. That is to say, the air in this room where I'm sitting. Um, and he has an example, right, of um, uh, 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 molding a tankard, right? You pour the pewter into the mold and the the parts of the tankard correspond to the parts of the mold. And that's a standard Aristotelian view about what it is for a body to be in a place. And then he shows, just like any scholastic theologian would do, that you could you could keep the relationship to the whole tankard or the whole mold, um, but get away, but take away the relationships between the parts of the pewter and the parts of the mold. And that's what that's how Christ's body is present in the Eucharist. And now you just expand that so it's awfully big. And that's how, according to Luther, Christ's body is present uh, in the universe. But this is just a, a, a sort of normal creaturely thing in a weird theological context, admittedly. And so Swingley says, 
at one point in this debate, because Zwingli, of course, is, is hell-bent on denying this because it's, it's completely incompatible with his view of the Eucharist or of Christ's presence or indeed of Christ's body. Uh, he says, um, but surely if you say that, then you're going to say Christ's body is infinite and, and has a divine attribute. Uh, and Luther says, not a bit of it. Don't you know the universe is finite in extent? And so Luther doesn't have in mind anything. I mean, he doesn't have in mind anything like the possession of a generally divine attribute. And in any case, yeah. I don't think anyone prior to some other Lutheran theologians whom we may or may not talk about later on ever thought that what a creature comes to possess is an actual divine attribute, either what the creature comes to the creature comes to be such that God's active in the creature, or the creature comes to be such that God causes a created transformation in the creature. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening in this, in a bizarre way, in this, in this, in this discussion in Luther. And I, I should say that people have this claim, I mean, Luther's claim here is so striking that it's easy to get, get distracted from the other material that I was talking about earlier on, which I, I really don't think anyone has actually spotted before. But this stuff is well known, but again, frequently, I think, misunderstood in just the way that Zwingli misunderstood it to mean that Christ's body has a divine attribute and in just the way that Luther said, you shouldn't miss, you shouldn't understand it in that way. Yeah. It seems from what I've read and understood the debate, it's very much about Luther predicating actual divine attributes of the human nature. So that's really, really interesting. Yeah. That's not at all what he means, right? That's completely wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's still, what Luther does mean is still very confusing to me. Yeah, no, I think it's completely clear. Uh, and I, why people have got confused about it is to do with what happened uh, in other bits of the Lutheran tradition. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so people have, when people think about Lutheran Christology, they think, oh, yeah, uh, just bracket Luther for a moment. Think about what happens in the, in the couple of decades after what I've been talking about. And everyone knows that there were vitriolic disputes between the Lutherans on the question of whether Christ's human nature could be itself the bearer of divine attributes. Um, and on the one hand, you've got the Wittenberg theologian, and then you get the, the Wurttemberg theologians uh, in the south in, in um, um, um Tübingen and places like this, and and they say no, no, no. Christ's human nature has a vast array of divine attributes, and we'll get onto why that might be in a moment. And then there are, I mean, there's another group of theologians. Let's not worry about that right now. That's the basic division between them. Now, how did we get from Luther's very minimalist claim to the wild claim of the theologians, the wild claims of the theologians in Tübingen? And actually, this is very easy to, to, to um, it's very easy to see what happened. Um, so I'll start with Luther. Luther, um, despite what many people say, accepts the view that we find in Scotus, according to which the divine person is the bearer of a human nature. And I've been presupposing that in everything I've said so far. Um, but there's another um, there's a more ancient kind of Christology. Um, you find it in Augustine, right? Pre-Chalcedonian one, um, according to which, in contrast to what I've been saying about Chalcedon, if we were to think about the referent of the term man, 
in a Christological context, it wouldn't be the divine person, and it would be the human nature. And the idea is that the divine person, the word, and the man enter into some kind of union with each other, usually of an ineffable kind. Now, for some reason, um, the Tübingen theologian Johannes Brentz, um, in the late 15, well, he accepts this view. I don't know why he accepts this pre-Chalcedonian view. Perhaps he's got it from Augustine. And then he encounters Luther's um, omnipresence claims, and he suddenly has this, he suddenly realizes that you could give an account of August, or an Augustinian-style hypostatic union in the following way. You could say that it consists in the communication of properties, and you construe the communication of properties to mean the communication of human properties to the divine person and of divine properties to the man, right? That's to say the human nature, right? And so what Brent's initially does, right, in that in the, he says using this idea from Luther and radically mis, mis or reconceiving it, say misconstruing it, um, I don't know which, because um, I don't know what he thought he was doing relative to Luther, at least initially. Um, and you say, you know, how could there be an incarnation if the divine person didn't give to the man divine attributes? Um and so that's the beginning of all the stuff in Lutheran Christology, which is completely different from what you find in Catholic and Reformed Christology. Um, but of course, it it, it 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 doesn't work, and Brent's quickly realized it didn't work, and quickly realized that there was a puzzle. Uh, it doesn't work um, metaphysically because it's quite clear that there are some divine attributes you could never predicate of a created substance. For example being uncreated, creating the stars, being everlasting in the past. And so Brentz has to restrict it, and not least because going on in Silesia at the same time, there's a theologian, Caspar uh, Schwenkfeld, who is saying exactly those things, and um, the Lutherans think he's just spiritualizing Christ's body. So Brentz can't associate himself with that view. So Brentz has to retreat from the view that it consists in the communication of all attributes. It just consists in the communication of some attributes to the human nature, ones it could have, like omnipresence, omniscience, um, omnipotence, but not being eternal, being the creator. So now why the, where this goes wrong from a Chalcedonian perspective is that Brent's going to end up with getting the wrong truth values for certain Christological predications. So I said earlier on that it's natural to interpret um, Chalcedon as maintaining that um, you can predicate human attributes of the divine person, howsoever denominated, so that this predication, this man created the stars, comes out as true in standard Chalcedonian semantics. But in Berenzian semantics, it comes out as false, because the only way that it could be true would be if the, the, the human nature, i.e. the man, the proper referent of the word man, the human nature, had the relevant attribute, but it can't because it had a beginning in time. So this turns out to be an absolute disaster. It causes the Lutherans um, no end of difficulty because for some reason, and I'm not sure why, Brentz's view wins out in the Lutheran tradition. Um, and so it's now, they're now the Lutheran theologians are presented with a massive problem both in metaphysics and semantics, um, which they don't 
the semantic one, the one I've just been saying, you get the wrong truth values for some of these Christological predications. Uh, I can tell you when they sorted it out is in 1603, somebody worked out what you might want to say is very unsatisfactory. But that's yeah. that's outside the, the scope of the book we're talking about. <laughs> I can talk about it if you're interested. No, that, that, that was a really helpful explanation, I thought, on how we got from Luther to the later uh, Lutheran thought. I was going to say, it, it is a complete misunderstanding of Luther. But what's very interesting is that the early Lutherans themselves, the ones who were in favor of this kind of Christology, so the ones who were opposed to Melanchthon, um, didn't think that it was a misunderstanding of Luther. They will list Luther, Brentz, and often Bugenhagen in the same list as adopting the same view. Right. So the confusion, Brentz himself does it. He quotes vast, vast um, swaths of Luther in support of his view, and that happens again in the Lutheran um, in the formula of Concord in 1577 when they were trying to get together, um, not necessarily very successfully. Um, so I think people associated the two views, and Brent's himself probably associated the two views quite early on. Um, I don't know how much Luther himself knew about what was going on down in the south of Germany where where Brent's was. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, that's all right. I was just going to say maybe we could transition to Calvin now if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, what Calvin's thought was on the um, on the communicatio. Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. I will do. So Calvin straightforwardly agrees with Swingley on the question about um, how to predicate human attributes of the divine person, right? And he calls it a linguistic trope. He just has exactly the same thing that Swingley has. Um, I think it's, I mean, oddly enough, just by the by, this view you find it in Cyril of Alexandria as well, right? So when so it's perfectly Alexandrian. People often say, "No, Zwingli is more Antiochian and Luther's more Alexandrian." If people still use those, that little binary, um, but what 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 Calvin says is perfectly in line with what Cyril uh, says, um, and it's also perfectly in line with what Zwingli says. He simply agrees with him on this question. That so we don't want bearing relations. We just want predication relations between the divine person and the human um, attributes. Now, here's the thing. Think about the other kind of the, the second question that you were asking about the relationship between divine attributes and the human nature. Um, you get a lot of interesting differences. So bracket those Lutherans um, who believe that, that the human nature actually bears a certain literally divine attributes, certain infinite attributes. Bracket those. <clears throat> Think about um, the medieval view for a moment, what it is to participate in the divine. is to have some created qualities, transforming supernatural qualities. Um, you find that view in um, across the Reformation spectrum. The crucial thing about it is that what is involved is something created, right? Um, and so now if we think about some of the reformers bracketing the Luther bracketing the extreme Lutherans, there is a debate. Did Christ's human nature have any transforming gifts at all or not? Um, and it's very striking. Who thinks not? Melanchthon later on, right, has possessed no special supernatural gifts. Melanchthon and Swingley. Um, Calvin thinks that it does possess some special supernatural gifts. Um, and the one that he particularly has, which, which which almost everyone has except for Melanchthon and Swingley, goes right back to the early Alexandrian tradition. It's being life-giving, right? It's a giver of life. It confers immortality somehow. 
And Calvin thinks it has that um, supernatural gift. He doesn't say anything much about its ontological status. Um, <clears throat> but he certainly thinks that. And so that plays a role in his Eucharistic theology because um, Calvin thinks that what happens in the Eucharist is that God or the divine, the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, he uses the flesh, Christ's human nature, in conferring life of uh, some supernatural kind on the recipients uh, of communion. And he has a very odd view about how that happens. He thinks that it happens at a distance. Christ's body remains in heaven. and um, But by some special supernatural power, it's made to be such that it can participate in a divine activity that has the believer on earth as its um, end result or a transformation in the believer on earth as its end result. Uh, and that, it, I take it, is, is, is Calvin's view. Yeah, no, that, that, interesting. So after Luther's Wingley Calvin, and, and we've been talking about, I guess, other Lutherans, how does this debate end up taking shape over the the rest of the Reformation? Is this um, primarily a Lutheran debate? Are Reformed thinkers engaging in this? How, how does it sh shift over the decades that go, go past these figures? Okay, you mean in terms of the, the, the metaphysics of the Incarnation or the semantics generally, or are you thinking just about this, the way in which the human nature participates in divine attributes? I would think the, the, the last one, so the way the human nature participates in, in these attributes. Okay, um, that, so the Lutherans just go off on their own, right? And the, uh, the other sides don't really disagree. Um, I don't know, I haven't looked at technical discussions of, let's say, the nature of sanctifying grace in the Reformed theologians. Um, to the extent that Reformed scholastics talk about these things, as far as I know, they construe it just in the standard medieval scholastic way, right, in terms of the possession of created habits or dispositions. Uh, and the same would be true for Christ as well. Um, on the former question, the, um, the, most people in the 16th century, setting aside the Brentsian Lutherans, which later on becomes all of the Lutherans, think of the... Um, the hypostatic union along the lines outlined by Scotus, right? That that's true of all the Reformed theologians, as far as I know. Um, it's true of most of the Catholic theologians, the exception being um, um, the people who follow Cardinal Cajetan or some of the Thomists who have a slightly different view on the thing. Um, what happens with the Lutherans is that they, they, they sort of come up with a way of solving... Um, well, they, what happens with the Lutherans when you get into the 17th century is actually extremely interesting because they've got two they've got two problems. What explains the union between the God and the man? Right, given that when we can't, uh, we're not going to appeal to the view that the divine person bears the human nature like a substance bears an accident. And secondly, how are we going to solve the semantic problem that we should have this man created the stars? coming out as true and it comes out as false on the Lutheran semantics. On the former question, the metaphysical one, what happens amongst the Lutherans is they're engaging with... So Thomas Aquinas is becoming a much more canonical and popular figure in the 16th century. And they're engaging with some Thomist uh, theologians influenced by Cardinal Cajetan. 
And Aquinas has this view that the union between the divine person and the human nature uh, could be explained by the human nature's possession of the divine essay or existence. Uh, and the Lutheran theologians basically adopt that view. So that what explains the union of the man and the God is that the human nature comes to possess, well, specifically not divine existence, but the person's subsistence, that in virtue of which the divine person subsists, that thing comes to be possessed by the human nature, and that explains the union between the two. In terms of the semantic problem, um, they just adopt something from Occam in a really sort of weird and ad hoc way. What they've got is the view that man refers to, picks out, or in the, the, word, the language they like to use is denotes the human nature. Um, so in, in typical Christological locutions, right, the referent of man is the human nature. So how do we get it true that this man created the stars? Ah, we borrow something from Occam, which is a notion of connotation. So, and they don't quite get it right, so don't think, don't worry about Occam right now. But this is what they say: when we say this man, we denote the human nature, but we connote or bring along with that denotation the thought that that nature is united to the divine person, right? And then when we're confronted with rogue locutions like "this man created the stars," we allow ourselves to bracket the fact that the human nature is is the denotation of the word man and instead we we allow it to as it were to denote only the thing that it connotes which is the divine person and so this is a really ad hoc and clumsy kind of semantic theory because it it, it's sort of you 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 take with one hand what you've given with the other which is the denotation of the word man in this weird context although the word man still denotes the human person and we bracket that denotation and let it denote its connotation instead the divine person and then we get the right truth value for this man created the stars because in that locution although this man in fact denotes the divine person we allow ourselves to bracket that denotation and let the word just denote its connotation uh the divine person uh, so that's a, that's that's a hideous theory, right? That's desperate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty complicated, and definitely it seems ad hoc. Um, but it but it was yeah. a helpful explanation of how they at least tried to get around the problem. Mm -hmm. um, before we, so I'll tell you if you if you yeah. read Gerhardt, just very quick, if you uh -huh. read Gerhardt, you'll find you'll find that solution in him. Okay, um, hmm. to this problem, thinking about well-known 17th-century Lutheran theologians. So, yeah, uh, but he didn't he didn't invent it. Mm. Before we let you go, um, I wanted to see if you would offer uh, any resources that you think might be particularly helpful for the listeners if they want to um, learn more about the metaphysics of the incarnation. Things that um, maybe, uh, not that there really probably are any <laughs> entry-level works that would be particularly helpful, but things that um, maybe somebody that's just getting into this, a good place to start, and then some more advanced works. Yeah, in terms of the, I mean, the history of the thing is is very complicated and obscure, especially in the period that I'm, the periods that I've been dealing with. In terms of the, the systematics of the thing, um, if one's interested in the kind of approach that I've been presupposing, I suppose, in what I've said, um, I mentioned Tim Paul earlier on. He's written a couple of nice, sort of moderately advanced books. Um, on conciliar Christology, and one's called a defense of conciliar Christology. 
And then there's a defense of extended Christ conciliar Christology. I think those are really excellent. He's also just published one with Cambridge, which is a kind of introductory summary of those two things. I forget what it's called. I saw it advertised the other day. Yeah, I think it's just the incarnation. Yeah. Okay. That, I think that's the title. That sounds right. I mean, on the history of the thing, there obviously there are some there are some nice things um, on sort of early church, early church Christology that's well well served. There's still there's a big old, old volumes of Grillmeyer, Christ in Christian tradition, on the period really that I'm. I've been talking about or that I've been working on from the Middle Ages, and I say from 1050 to 1700. There's not much. There's a lot on the Reformation, but what I was arguing in my book is that almost all of it uh, is in some way or another misleading because there was a traditional narrative that started with what Luther and Swingley said about each other, which was that Swingley was an historian and Luther was a monophysite. Okay? And that those misinterpretations of Luther and Swingley, that they themselves were mutually responsible for, uh, I think, have clouded the literature all the way through. Mm. Um, uh, obviously, after 1700, this isn't quite true. After 1700, this kind of metaphysical stuff really begins to fade out. You get an, um, Enlightenment philosophy and you get pietism and it falls out of fashion. Although you will find scholastic discussions right the way through the 18th century if you look hard enough. Um, on the on the period that I've I've been talking about, I mean I'm in the middle myself of a project. Really, a year, twenty years ago I wrote. Well, it was the sort of monograph that came out of my doctoral dissertation on Aquinas to Scotus, and obviously I just wrote, I've just written this um, book on the 16th century Protestants. It it occurred to me that I knew so much about obscure Lutheran Christology of the 16th century that I may as well go on and write about the 17th century too, using what I'd learned about the 16th century. So I've just, if, I, if I'm permitted to self-publicize, I've just finished a big monograph. Uh, it's under review at the press at the moment, and it's not, it's Catholics and Protestants, everything from about 1580 to 1700, squeezed down as much as I can. Um, and still, then you can. Everything is either really the the um, uh, sort of result of Scotus or the result of Aquinas. Those are the two, the Reformed theologians, and most of the Catholics, the Jesuits follow Scotus, the Lutherans, and um, some, not all, Dominicans follow Aquinas on the on the basic metaphysics and semantics of the thing. Um, and so then I thought, well, having covered the period from 1250 to 1310 and, and all the way from 1500 to 1700, why not fill in the gap and do a book on from Ockham to Beale? So I'm working, I just started working on that, uh, transcribing Peter Oriel, who turns out to be ex extremely important, 14th century, early 14th century theologian. Um, so that's what I'm working on now. And then I thought, well, why not? When I finish that one, just do one from ten fifty to twelve fifty and have the whole thing covered. <laughs> because I think the the kind of approach that I use, which is very analytic and very philosophical, strikes me as just eminently suitable for these kinds of scholastic texts. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I've been doing. Um, it's all metaphysics and semantics. There's nothing on redemption, for example, or any of those other kinds of Christological topics. Yeah. yeah so. 
something you, you mentioned that I maybe it's just I, I haven't read enough of the material. Um, it seems from what I a lot of at least a lot of the popular things that I read that it there's this monopoly on Thomas Aquinas where he is the giant figure source for everybody's thoughts, and Scotus is almost kind of sidelined as. Um, a spectator in a lot of ways, but it seems what you've said is, you know, they're two major figureheads contributing to the thinking of a lot of different groups. Is there a reason that maybe SCOTUS doesn't get the same amount of airtime and publicity as Thomas does? Yeah, and entirely Leo XIII uh, in the encyclical Eterni Patris has said that um, uh, Aquinas is the model or paradigm case of a Catholic philosopher and theologian. And you can see why you would choose Aquinas, because Scotus is a much harder thinker. But if you, it's 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 completely it's completely ahistorical, and it's very interesting if you actually if you actually look at what happens between thirteen hundred and seventeen hundred, really for two hundred years up to fifteen hundred, it's the time of Scotus. And what happens from fifteen hundred? Um, I don't know why it may have just been the sheer intellectual power of Cardinal Cajetan. I don't know. Aquinas begins to become more in the ascendancy again. I don't think he was ever as popular as Scotus. But I mean, one I mean, one very telling thing is that the Jesuits are required in their theological um, curriculum to comment on Aquinas, not Scotus. If you actually look at what they do. they follow, they comment on the summer, but in an, in, in an extremely scotistic kind of way. Um, so what happens, I think of Suarez, for example. So people used to say, well, you know, Suarez was a Thomist who was infected by scotism, but really it's the other way around. He was a scotist who, as it were, was infected by Thomism. And if you think about the period up to 1700, which is really the scholastic period, uh, Scotus was the dominant figure mm-hmm. all the way through. Uh, so the way that we look at it now, I think people would have been amazed. Anyone living before 1700 who was a, remotely interested in theology would be amazed that we think that Aquinas is the major figure because yeah. they thought, well, he was fantastic. But he remember, Aquinas was an outlier. He got condemned in 1277. He was um, far more Aristotelian than any of the other theologians. People thought he should have been at home in the arts faculty. He was He was a bizarre odd case. Right? He was an eccentric. He wasn't a mainline thinker. Uh, he was difficult for people to assimilate for just the same reason that Aristotle was a difficult thinker to assimilate. Right? It's just a lot of what Aristotle says is really difficult to integrate with Christian theology. And I think by and large, they, they thought Aquinas had failed and they gave up with the project mm-hmm. and just carried on wow. doing their own thing in the tradition of Avicenna as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. So if... If we wanted to understand more about Scotus, what are the key works that we should go to for him? Well, it's difficult because there, there are two problems. One is not much as, as yet translated. Hmm. That's just changing because I notice um, um, there's a translation now of the whole of Scotus's Ordinatio done by um, uh, a professor um, uh, called Peter Simpson. Uh, so he's a classicist and it's up on his website. Um the other difficulty is that relative to Aquinas, Scotus is, is a fiddly and difficult thinker. Right? So he's, Aquinas is a beautiful, lucid writer. Scotus is not a good, he's not a good and clear writer to start off with. And once you've got through it, the thought underneath it is pretty knotty. Right? It's a bit like you know, trying to read Kant if you're used to reading Hume or something like that. <laughs> um, 
So it's good as it's just a, a much harder thinker. Um, but the order of the ordinatio is there now, which is the main commentary on the sentences on Simpson's website. Um, awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Advice on how to read Scotus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's for, you've got it. I know you've got several books on him, so I've got them on my shelf. I just have not read them yet. So, <laughs> you know, confession <laughs> on that. But uh, I think this has all been really, really helpful and really interesting. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to talk with us about all these topics. Uh, I know before we started recording, we had mentioned you have an academia page with a couple resources <laughs> on there. So if you're listening and you want to find out more of the stuff that Dr. Richard Ross has been put working on. Uh, I guess you can find that there. Um, and then, you know, I know everybody can go to Amazon and, and type in your name and a bunch of your stuff comes up. So uh, I do recommend everybody to check out his resources. I know every time I read his stuff, I learn something. It's always written in a really clear way that's really, really helpful to understanding. So I thank you for the work you're doing, Dr. Cross. And I commend all of our listeners to check out uh, his resources because I think they're going to help you out. And um, I guess, do you have any last words or any or any summary or anything that you wanted to, to comment on that you felt like we, we missed? No, I just I just want to thank you for inviting me and in for uh, your wonderful questions. Awesome. Well, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. You, you've been great, and I'm really, really thankful for it. And everybody who's been listening, you have been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.